Beloved, your soul has no other pasture than Jesus Christ. There is nothing in this world that will satisfy you, nothing else than Jesus Christ. Nothing else in this world that will give you life other than the one to whom all life has been given by the Father. Jesus Christ, your crucified and risen and ascended Lord. If you are to live, you must live in him. And the very good news that I have for you this morning is that in this sacrament, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus himself gives you that which you need and that for which you long. He gives you himself, his very own self, his body and his blood, miraculously given and parted to you by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit as we are lifted up together to heaven and feed upon the one, our Lord Christ, the one who is our life. Beloved, this meal, this sacrament we partake of week by week, month by month, year by year, this Lord's table is gift. It is sheer gift given to you by your Father who loves you. If you remember nothing else from this sermon series, this Advent season, please I beg you, remember that, that this sacrament, this meal is a gift that God gives to you. Indeed, one of the most fundamental things that we can prevent us from experiencing the gift that is given to us in this meal is beginning to believe that it's some kind of work that we do or it's connected somehow to what we do for God. According to John Calvin, one of the most dangerous things that we can do in the Lord's Supper is begin to believe that we must make ourselves worthy of it before we can receive it. Calvin says, if it is a question of seeking worthiness in ourselves, we are undone, he says. Only despair and deadly ruin remain to us. He goes on, he says, surely the devil could find no speedier means of destroying men than by so maddening them with these notions of worthiness so that they would not taste and savor this food with which their most gracious heavenly Father has willed to feed them. In order, he says, therefore, not to rush headlong into ruin. Let us remember that this sacred feast, this Lord's table, is medicine for the sick, solace for sinners, alms for poor, but would bring no benefit to the healthy and righteous and rich if such could even be found. He says, how could we, needy and bare of all good, befouled with sins, half dead, eat the Lord's body worthily? Rather, we shall think that we, as being poor, come to a kindly giver. We, as being sick, to a physician. We, as sinners, to the author of righteousness. 
finally, we as those who are dead to him who gives us life. Beloved, this table is not for those who make themselves worthy. Quite the opposite, actually. No, this sacred feast is medicine for the sick. That's the image that we should have. We should be wheeled up here on stretchers, right? Medicine for the sick. This Lord's Supper is solace for sinners. This holy sacrament is alms, charity for the poor, for the destitute. And indeed, friends, it is by receiving this gift of the Lord's Supper in this way, in our unworthiness, week after week, all the years of our lives, that we actually begin to learn what it means that God truly loves us. Not because we are worthy, but simply because His love is for His people and His affection has been set upon the likes of you and me. Perhaps there's nowhere in the Scriptures that reveals God's care for us and our unworthiness and our need to receive His love on His terms, not ours, than in the story of Jesus washing His disciples' feet in John 13. I'm going to read that text now. Listen carefully, friends, to God's Word from John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own <clears throat> who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing <clears throat> excuse me, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Lord, now may the lips of my mouth and the I'm sorry, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts gathered here together be found pleasing and acceptable 
in your sight. We ask this through our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Printed on the back of your order of worship is a poem entitled Love by a man named George Herbert. George Herbert was a pastor in the Church of England in the first days of the 17th century. He was about 10 years old when the King James Version was translated, the English version of the Bible. And his poetry, which is remarkable, was not discovered until after his death. He died early, around the, year of, around the age of 40. It was only after his di- that he died that his poems began to be published, and of course they are still read today. I want to take a minute to read this poem and to talk with you about it, because I think this poem is actually a fascinating explanation of our text this morning from John 13, and this theme that we're considering of how it is that we experience the love of God in this Lord's Supper. The overall context of this poem isn't very complicated. It's basically a conversation between the speaker of the poem and the poem and a character called love that responds to him. In this conversation in the poem, love is inviting the speaker into his home so that he can serve him with a meal. And though the speaker continually is deflecting and pushing back and hesitating against love, the poem ends with love having the last word, a word of invitation and welcome, and the speaker finally sitting down to eat. Now, because Herbert is a Christian poet, and if you look at all of his poetry, they're filled with biblical imagery and Christian theology, we can be confident that this character called love isn't just love as some kind of abstract generic force or being, but it's the one who is love incarnate. This is God himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who speaks in this poem. And so as I, as I read this poem, I'd encourage you to think about it as a picture of the Lord's Supper and how Christ is encouraging us, inviting us, beckoning us to partake of him in this meal and what is necessary in order for us to do that. So here we go. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame 
my dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. At the beginning of this poem, love is welcoming the speaker as a guest into his home for a meal, but the speaker is full of anxiety and fear. He is guilty of dust and sin, and he knows he has no right to be welcomed to the house of love. That's the tension that's brought in there in the first stanza of this work. And the rest of the poem is about how love overcomes the objections of the speaker. When love asks him what he lacks, the speaker answers honestly. He says, a guest, one that's worthy to be here. And love responds simply, you shall be he. You shall be the guest. But the speaker continues to object. He says to love, I, the unkind, ungrateful, my dear, I cannot look on thee. And then love takes the speaker's hand and smiles and says, Who made the eyes but I? Which is not only a wonderful pun in the English language, it's also an assertion of love's true character, that he is the one who is the creator of all things. But the speaker continues to push back and argue. He says, Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. Now, by this point, if you're reading this poem with any kind of attention to detail, you're beginning to realize something, right? This poem, written 400 years ago, is not just about some metaphysical dialogue between love and an unnamed speaker. No, this poem actually is about you. That's what Herbert wants you to believe, at least. This poem is about me. This poem is about anyone who has tried to wrestle with the reality of God's overwhelming love that is revealed in Jesus Christ, that is given to them. Right? It's one thing to believe that God loves the world or God loves humanity, but it's quite another to believe, to really believe in our bones that God loves me as a person, actually loves me the context of all that I know that I am. Every single person I've ever spoken to about the spiritual life has struggled with this on some level. This is a fundamental thing that all of us wrestle with. How is it that God can love me? Not just my neighbor, not just the church as a whole, but me. Because all of us know the depth of our sin. We know our sin better than anyone else's. We know how petty we are so often. We know how quickly we become angry. We know how weak we feel so frequently. We know how tired we are and how often we fall, fall, fall far short of who we ought to be not only in our actions and our words, but even more difficult in our thoughts and in the movements of our hearts. When we look at our actual lives, God's love, His pursuit of us, the fact that He calls 
you and me, his beloved, seems inexplicable, unbelievable, to the extent that many times it's just easier to sort of try to hide. It's easier to put up our defenses and say, don't do that. Don't give me your love. Give me what I deserve. I can understand getting what I deserve. And then, even when love persists, even when love looks us in the eyes and says those words of pardon and forgiveness, when love says, know you not who took the blame, who bore the blame, still we're tempted to say, my dear, then I will serve. This is really the last obstacle in the Christian life, this impulse to not fully receive God's love on his terms, but try to keep it on ours. My dear, then I will serve, we say. Okay, maybe I can accept that Jesus has borne the shame for my sin. Maybe I can accept that he's not going to push me out of the house like I deserve. But still, I should be able to do something to justify his love for me. I should be able to do something to make my identity as his beloved make sense. I know I can serve. I can be the one who serves at table. And this is the place where all of us really, I think, in some way get stuck when we wrestle with the truth of the gospel in our lives. We can somewhat grasp that Jesus died for our sin, that God doesn't condemn us as he might have done, but we struggle to see our relationship to God as anything more than that of a servant, a supplicant, a worker in his field that might someday repay the debt that we have incurred. And it is here in this place that the great turn of this poem takes place. For it is here that love speaks one final time, and love finally overwhelms the resistance of the speaker and stills our hearts as well. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. He's no longer trying to intellectually wrestle with the speaker. He's just saying, you just got to sit down and taste the food that I have for you. And so the speaker says, I did sit and eat. The time for intellectual arguments is over. Only an action will do. A sitting and eating the food that love gives. In other words, at some point you have to stop talking. At some point you have to stop wrestling. At some point you have to stop trying to make God's love make sense in your mind. At some point even words about God's love aren't sufficient. At some point you must just sit down and let love serve you and feed you. At some point you must simply taste love's meat. At some point, in other words, if you're going to understand the gospel, if you're going to grasp the love of God for you, you have to just be quiet and relinquish control and open your hands and let Jesus Christ serve you and feed you.
This, of course, is precisely what happens in this poem. And it's precisely what happens in the narrative from John 13 that we just read. The text that was, without a doubt, one of the primary inspirations for Herbert when he wrote this poem, along with Song of Solomon and Revelation 3 and other places in the scriptures. For in that text, as John tells us, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father. And having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them, John says, to the end. And this is how he did it. He didn't use words. He didn't give them a final sermon. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel and tied it around his waist. He poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' dirty feet. How does Jesus love his disciples in this story? He loves them not by speaking to them primarily, but by acting towards them. He communicates his love by serving them. That's how he persuades them of his love. That's how he loves them to the end. By actually getting on his knees and taking their dirty feet in his hands and washing them clean. But when he comes to Peter, Peter who is of course like all of us, that's why he talks so much so that we can have someone to identify with in the gospel narratives, He says what all the rest of the disciples were probably thinking. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And then a moment later, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Not in a million trillion years so you wash my feet. In other words, Peter is saying to Jesus, just as we say to Jesus, Lord, don't you know who I am and who you are? I should be washing your feet. Actually, I wish I had thought of that 10 minutes ago before you started this. I would have thought of that if I was better, if I was a better person. Now, just give me that basin and towel and sit down in this chair that I'm, you know, I was just getting ready for you, really. And let's get back to a situation that makes sense, right? Me on my knees doing whatever I can do to serve you. Let me get out of this terribly vulnerable position that feels so exposing that you are putting me in with your inexplicable love and service for me. But Jesus, in response to all that talking of Peter, he just says these words, words that we'd be wise to meditate on. He says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. In other words, Jesus says to Peter, you must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. Not, you know, I would appreciate it if you would sit down. Not sitting down would be a helpful thing for you to do right now, but you must, the poem says, sit down. You must, Jesus says to Peter, let me wash you. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. You see what John is saying and what Herbert is saying and what I am trying to say this morning is this, friends. 
You will never grasp the love of God for you so long as it remains an abstract theological concept. You will never know the love of God for you unless God serves you, unless God gets down on his knees and washes your feet. It will never happen unless you let him take your naked, dirty feet in his hands so that he can wash them. You'll never fully explore the depths of God's love unless you stop talking about it in the abstract and let Jesus actually tell you what to do, tell you to sit down and taste his meat. Let him serve you by making you clean. Let him serve you by giving you his life. Let him serve you by giving you his body and blood for your food and your drink. When we say to love these words, when we say like Peter, my dear, I will serve. Love responds to us and says, you must sit down and taste my meat. And it's here, here in this meal, in the Lord's Supper, where we receive, friends, the service of Jesus every Lord's Day. Our Lord serves us in this meal. It is here in this meal that we do not so much come to intellectually understand the love of God, as experience the love of God for us. Calvin himself says, I would rather not understand what is taking place in the Lord's Supper fully as experience it. We, may, we need to take, there's a reason, friend, we, we take this supper every week. Every week we do it. And there are many reasons for that, but at least one of the reasons is because we need the practice. We need the practice that it provides for us. Because all of us need to receive through a concrete action of God, Jesus' service again and again and again, to learn more and more that the heart of the gospel is not your worthiness or what you can do for the Lord. No, the heart of the gospel is what God has done and is doing now for you. That he has given his only son to die in your stead that he is raised from the dead, that you might have eternal life, and that the life of that same Lord Christ is given to you by his Spirit. Each Lord's Day. Beloved, I know that when you come to take this meal every week, you're tempted to think of many things. Sometimes you're tempted to think of your sin and of your unworthiness. But what's happening in this meal, love is taking you by the hand. He's saying, you are my guest, and I have made you worthy to be here. In this meal, you might be tempted at times to think of your ingratitude, your presumption. But in this meal, love takes you by the hand and smiles and says, who made your eyes but I? In this meal, you might be tempted to think of your sin, and your shame. But friends, you've already confessed your sin. We just did that like 30 minutes ago. And your love 
forgave them then, just as he forgave them before. He has forgotten them already. And every week he says to you, do you not know who bore the blame for whatever it is that you've done? And in this meal, when you have forgotten all of those things, you've let them go, still you might be tempted to think, well, how can I serve? How can I do something? How can I repay this love? And again and again, in this meal, your love says to you, you must sit down and taste my meat. And so, beloved, listen to your Lord. Heed his voice. Sit and eat. Stop objecting. Stop thinking about your sin. Stop thinking about yourself at all. Rather, like the bride, the song, think of your beloved. Think of his beauty and his strength. Think of his love for you. Think of his desire, of his commitment, of his mysterious incarnation, of his glorious death of his even more glorious resurrection, of his ascension now at his Father's right hand. That's what we should think about when we come to this meal. The glory and wonder of the love of Christ. How it is that he loves us. How he loves you. How he loves me. And how in this meal he is actually serving us week by week. And he does that not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we're all such wonderful servants. No, he does it for this reason. Because we are his beloved. That's why. Because you are his beloved. That's why he serves you in this meal. And your Lord Christ has loved you with a love that is eternal. It does not fade. A love that is stronger than death itself. A love whose flashes are flashes of fire. Indeed, they are the very flame of the Lord. And in response to a love like that, what can we do but say, I am my beloved's and he is mine. He has brought me to his banqueting house and his banner over me is love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.